I'm Franklin, and this is the Berkeley Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, food technology, gold catalysts, and promiscuous ladybugs. In addition, we'll be joined by Chris Mooney, who will discuss the Republican War on Science. Also, we'll find out what Debrite is. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week, coming right up here on the Berkeley Grok Science Show. I'm Frank Lynn. And again, I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. I still can't get over the fact that it's 2006. Well, it's been a couple of weeks since the New Year's, huh? And already I'm wasting the year <laughs> as we speak. <laughs> so which iPod did you get? Got me the iPod brick. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> the iPod lump of coal. That's yeah. the black one, right? <laughs> yeah. Not the U2 one, unfortunately. Well, what did you get for your New Year's gift? I guess the chance to live one more year. <laughs> well, the year isn't over yet. <laughs> It's just getting started. Yep. So it looks like there are some advances in food technology that's making life worth living for 2006. As long as food continues to exist, yes, I'll be quite happy about that. Yeah, so have you ever figured out what's in Cheese Whiz? Certainly not cheese, I would think. <laughs> Everything but. So it turns out, since there are actually novel ways of applying other sorts of food besides from a can, like one of the new innovations on the market is spray-on salad dressing. Does it come in an aerosolized can? I'm not sure, but it's something that just came out of the Wishbone brand and it's been available since late last year but it's a very interesting trend here where apparently they claim that it's gonna be geared for that conscious because it'll allow you to consume a third less salad but have the same amount of effect that you would with her. I, I don't know if that'll work. I think people just spray a lot of dressing on. You know, I would just spray it directly into my mouth. I would just take off the little spray cap and just pour it on is what I would do. <laughs> yes. Yeah. One of the interesting food developments. The other one is there's a new beverage called Yes. Sounds for your essential source. So what is in the essential source? Your essential source will contain 12 vitamins, 10 fortified minerals, 70 trace minerals, and 22 amino acids. And the company claims that it will provide 75% absorption, which is three times more than water. tablets <laughs> that you get from Centrum or whatever. Okay. I guess I'll try that, <laughs> as long as one of those essential ingredients is cocaine. <laughs> Maybe they should just combine it with Coke. <laughs> we'll see. This is interesting food development. You can check it out in your local grocery. And what better way to start off than with sex? Wow. Isn't that what drives the human race? <laughs> Not only the human race, but most animal populations. And the Republican Party. I thought they tried to outlaw that. <laughs> Theoretically, they should go extinct at some point, right? I think they propagate by binary fission. <laughs> A group of researchers at the University of Western Australia in Perth, led by ecologist Mary Weberly, have found a group of ladybugs that are highly promiscuous. Does that mean they have high diversity as a result of their promiscuity? Well, apparently their high promiscuity causes them to die a lot quicker, or at least not be able to procreate as quickly. Oh, jeez. There's a sexually transmitted disease that they can pick up. This one is a small mite. Uh-huh. And what happens is because these ladybugs are very promiscuous, the mite just spreads 
through the population very rapidly. Hmm. And as a result, think, well, this should just kill off the population. But if they're able to create a new generation just in time to grow up, get infected, and then <laughs> start the whole cycle over. Hmm, that's interesting. I mean, you would think there would be some sort of evolutionary effect to weed out this behavior because of it. Well, if the whole population is at a sort of a semi-stable state at this moment. Okay. So that if something changes in the environment, then the population can just completely crash or they could explode, right? So in terms of the mite population, do they just simply live off the ladybugs? Or? Yeah, apparently they live off of their sexual organs because it winds up sterilizing the okay. animal. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, lesson for uh, people too, I guess. Yeah, well, at least procreate before you have an STD, I guess, <laughs> the, is the message here. Anyway, fascinating work was published in the recent edition of the Journal of Animal Ecology. So, Charles, have you ever thought about changing your eye color? Um, kind of like my plaid colored eyes. <laughs> you want to make it blue then, huh? Well, I think one of the colors is blue. <laughs> <laughs> so it turns out the next generation of contact lens will incorporate some structures from nanotechnology to enhance and accentuate eye color over your irises, also with enhancing your uh, vision. So is it just going to enhance the colors that are already present, or will it add colors that aren't normally found in the iris? Right. So actually, a previous generation of contact lens used pigments to, mm-hmm. in fact, change the color. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that looked uh, too garish for most consumers. <laughs> so what companies like Siba and Bosch and Lom have been trying to do is to incorporate materials with different refractive indexes into mm. the lens. And that actually accentuates the color that's already there. Right. And in fact, could provide various types of uh, filter. Mm. effects. Uh, for example, with tennis players, they'll be able to see the yellow balls come much more apparent. Vividly, yeah. And for people who already have blue eyes, they'll make their blues more bluer. And the nice thing about these lenses is that when you hold up in light, they'll look clear, but it's only against a dark background that mm. you see the pigmentation. And for people looking through the lens, they don't see any difference. Amazing. This is an example of nanotechnology being applied for cosmetics. Well, I'm just waiting for those nanobots to take over the world, but this will be a good substitute until that time. Well, you got the viruses, which are nanobots. <laughs> this is one of the great products that we're going to see one of these days coming onto the market. Go down to the stores now. <laughs> and there's a very nice article in the recent edition of Chemical and Engineering News. All right, Frank, and how's your alchemy skills going these days? Well, I've been trying to practice breatharianism so I can breathe the air and just convert it into food, I guess, but it doesn't quite seem to work. Yes, I've been trying to do that with sexual gratification as well, but that doesn't seem to work. <laughs> you mean by breathing? Yeah. I thought asphyxiation actually does the... You only get one shot at that, really. <laughs> And then you die. <laughs> so people have been using gold for a bit of, well, I guess you call reverse alchemy, uh-huh. to actually convert some chemicals into useful chemical products okay. through oxidative processes. So is the gold used as a catalyst of some sort? Exactly. And oxygen needs a kickstart, a yeah. catalyst to make things happen. Okay. And gold at a nanoscale is able to do this. Cool. So it's pretty fascinating. And recent uh, development by chemist Graham Hutchings of Cardiff University in the UK has found they can tweak these reactions using different salt with the gold particles to derive different products. Different gold catalysts? Well, gold catalysts in different types of solvents. Oh, okay. With the materials. Okay. They've been able to show a wide range of products and they can tweak different types of oxidative reactions just Uh by changing solvents. Are they actually able to get products that they were not able to get before or is it somehow make the reaction a lot safer? I think it just shows that you don't have to use hydrogen in these type of reactions, which typically is what's needed to be done. Right. And pretty big deal. They actually say this could actually be very useful for green chemistry in 
terms of breaking down products. And stuff. Isn't that what the uh, Nobel Prizes were award for yeah, last year? Indeed, indeed. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah. yeah. So one, one of these, maybe my gold filling in my mouth can actually carry some interesting reactions. Hopefully uh, turning air into food, <laughs> among other things. So again, work led by Graham Hutchings and published in the recent edition of Nature. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, coming up next, Mr. Chris Mooney will join us to discuss the Republican War on Science. So stay tuned. From stem cell research to the intelligent design debate, the rift between the Republican leadership and the scientific community grows steadily wider. Science has never been more crucial to understanding the political issues facing the country and responding to them successfully. Yet, science and scientists have less influence with the federal government than at any time since the Eisenhower administration. Well, how have conservative ideologues, lobbyists, and the Republican Party waged such a successful war on science? Well, joining us today to discuss some of these issues is Mr. Chris Mooney. Mr. Mooney is a journalist and former writer for The American Prospect, and his new book, The Republican War on Science, discusses some of these issues. Mr. Mooney, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Rocks. Thanks for having me. It's certainly a pleasure to have you on the program. It's really, I think, a very fascinating book, but it has something of an incendiary title. What do you actually mean by a Republican war on science? I mean that the way the Republican Party operates today, the way that it maintains power and get, gets what it wants, involves misrepresenting, distorting, and attacking science across such a wide variety of issues that it really is an assault on the integrity of science as a way of knowing, and certainly the science as a body of knowledge that's relevant to political decision-making. I see. And I mean, there are obvious examples of this, but perhaps we can go through some of them. How uh, Republicans use their uh, influence, say, for instance, in environmental policy? Well, on environmental issues, certainly the most, the best known issue is global climate change, where unfortunately Republicans have aligned themselves with so-called skeptics or contrarians who are continuing to doubt either whether humans are causing global warming itself or the severity of the problem, and often are involved in attacking mainstream scientific consensus conclusions in doing so. Mm-hmm. Uh, oftentimes it seems as if they do this by actually trying to say that there's a great deal of uncertainty in the actual data that's involved. How are you able then to distinguish between good data and bad data in science, where the Republicans try and claim that there's uncertainty in science? Well, uncertainty is always present in science, and good data and bad data have uncertainty associated with them. You can never fully dispel uncertainty. So the general way that you distinguish between good and bad science is, first of all, you would expect any scientific conclusion to have some uncertainty attached to it, and if it didn't, 
you should be suspicious of it. But luckily, we do have very trustworthy scientific assessment bodies that are able generally to give politicians or policymakers a very good sense of what the state of scientific understanding is. So, for example, the National Academy of Sciences is really a stellar scientific advisory body that brings together experts in a wide variety of areas to assess the state of knowledge. And, of course, there are a number of scientific societies and other organizations in specialized areas which do the same thing. And that's how ultimately we, we determine what science knows and where the uncertainty lies and what's relatively established. Uh, but these, these organizations in and of themselves can also be usurped for political means. Uh, I suppose that it's possible. I mean, I'm just saying that they're the best that we have. Mm. So other issues then in science, which obviously are highly politically charged, of course, is things like stem cell research. Sure. Those are, um, again, now we're talking more about, we talked about global warming before, mm-hmm. and the reason, of course, that there's so much fighting over the science here is that many fossil fuel companies are part of the Republicans' constituency, mm-hmm. and so the fossil fuel companies are attacking the scientific consensus uh, position in many cases. With embryonic stem cell research, we switch over to another core Republican constituency, not industry, but religious conservatives, and it turns out that science is being misused or abused once again in service of what religious conservatives want. So, for example, on the issue of stem cell research or on the issue of evolution. Right, you bring up the issue of evolution in schools being taught. It's never settled in American life because we have a creationist movement that is many, many decades old and really shows no sign of flagging here. But the fact that it is a movement itself suggests that this is not a scientific issue. The scientific issues may well have been resolved. But we still have a long-standing political problem here where a large swath of the populace refuses to accept evolution and they will do pretty much anything to undermine its teaching. And uh, we really haven't gotten anywhere on this issue. Mm. Uh, What would you say is the philosophy motivating a lot of these attacks on science in the Republican Party? Well, I think there's some philosophy motivating it, but frankly, I think that much of it is just crass politics (laughs) in the sense that Republican control of the government is dependent upon interest groups, constituencies that help them get into power, get them votes, get them campaign funding, and then help them keep power. And these constituencies are, there are many, but for our purposes, the ones that are relevant Mm -hmm. are religious conservatives or the Christian right and regulated industry or big business. And so science is being attacked in areas where one of the constituencies has a very firm interest, like evolution, like climate change. Um, Now, as for philosophical uh, elements underlying this, there are some of those as well. So, for example, the Republican Party today is the party of modern conservatism in America, and the modern conservative movement uh, from its inception was accused, for example, of having something of an anti-intellectual streak or um, an anti-university streak. They kind of overlap, but the basic notion was that the conservative movement which now dominates the Republican Party, tends to distrust universities' leading centers of knowledge in our country, and they think that they're biased with a liberal tilt. Much much the same allegation is brought against the press. And, of course, if you distrust universities, then you're going to be much more likely to be willing to discard scientific knowledge that is produced in universities. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the more philosophical elements that's in play here. Another one is just distrust of government, which is also very strong in the conservative movement and the Republican Party. And again, of course, a lot of science is either being funded by government or actually being done by government. Mm -hmm. So again, you're more willing to discard uh, this knowledge uh, because of the anti-government bias. Mm. Certainly, liberals also have their constituencies that are interested in certain results of science. They, of course, can be biased as well. Why is it necessarily just a Republican war on science? Why Republicans and not Democrats? Well, it's certainly the case that some Democrats have misused or abused science. Uh, We can talk about some examples of that if you'd like, and that that groups on the political left have done so as well. 
this is not particularly surprising, given that politicians always want science to say something that supports their predetermined political goals, and so there's always a tension between politics and science. However, we do not see the same extent of the problems coming from Democrats. And if we do see some problems on the extreme left, for example, extreme environmentalism or the animal rights movement, it so happens that the Democrats are much more moderate and do not cater to these constituencies so they don't misuse science in their service. Uh, we really do have a comprehensive problem, though, when it comes to using science to appease both industry and religious conservatives. And this problem is coming from the people that are running the entire government right now. So it's really just more extensive. It's not that any side is innocent. It's just that one side is really a lot more guilty. Uh, well, we are running slightly out of time, but I'm curious, what brought you to be interested in this particular topic? I'm a journalist who has a long history of writing on politics, but more specifically, writing on politics at its intersection with science. And this is just something that comes out of my own deep interest in science that I've had for a long time. And it turned out that as a political writer, if you occupied this area and covered scientific issues that had a political uh, import, then it turned out that there wasn't a lot of competition because there are political writers and science writers, but the two don't overlap that much. Mm. So I was combining the two of them. That's what got me here. Well, it is indeed a highly charged issue, and I think a lot of people should probably go out and read your book. Hope so. Okay. Mr. Mooney, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Berkeley Grok Science Show and discussing your book, The Republican War on Science. Thanks for having me. And you were just listening to Mr. Chris Mooney discussing the Republican War on Science. This is the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Coming up next, it's the Grokatron 5000, plus the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned.
right, welcome back to the Berkeley Grok Science Show. We're back from the break, and Mr. Chris Mooney, author of The Republican War on Science, has graciously decided to stick around and play our game, the Grokatron 5000. The Grokatron 5000 is, of course, our supercomputer, which was formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, Spherical Earth or Flat Earth? So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, would you find them more on a spherical Earth or a flat Earth? Mr. Mooney, are you ready to play a game, the Grokatron 5000? I'm really psyched. Okay, here we go. Number one, Martha Stewart. Spherical, because she's not a creation. <laughs> okay. As, as I know. All right. Uh, number two, Colin Powell. Spherical again. I think Colin Powell is a very realistic guy in general. WMD accepted. Uh, number three, Jerry Springer. Flat Earth, I think that he contributes, or has in the past anyway, contributed a lot of stupidity to our culture. Indeed, indeed. All right, and uh, number four, spherical or flat, Donald Trump. Uh, I'll give him spherical. He knows a lot about the world. Okay. <laughs> All right, and uh, wrapping up number five, finally, of course, the President of the United States, George W. Bush. Flat. All right, well, Mr. Mooney, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Berkeley Grok Science Show and, of course, talking about your book, The Republican War on Science. Thanks very much. Last right, now Sean Connery with this week's answer to last week's question of the week. Tried to dig out of the rock, hitting all this debrite, but what was it? Well, it's just a useful, useless term that geologists have come up with to describe all kinds of manners of rocks they can't classify. Now to get off the rock! Forrest here with this week's question of the week. I, I gotta pee, but I've always wondered why is it so colorful? That shiny, lemony, yellow. Although it doesn't smell like lemon. Well, if you know or think you know, email us at groks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you'll make sure you'll flush your toilet. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Groks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Groks, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Groks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.